0: You know, a large percentage of Americans, if asked um, about their faith, what their faith choice or preference or background or whatever, what have you, is, <clears throat> a lot of Americans would say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. And it's kind of an ambiguous phrase. I mean, what does that really mean? Spiritual but but not religious, and if you press a little bit harder, what you tend to get by the folks who say i 'm spiritual but not religious um, is they mean that that my my faith is a very private versus a public type thing by spiritual, I mean that I have beliefs, I have preferences it 's very uh, you know, close to my heart. Uh, I don't really share it a lot. I don't talk about it a lot. I don't express it a lot. It's my business, not your business. Not necessarily uh, uh, angry, like you know, get away from me. But it's just very, very private. And a lot of times, they would see religion as very public. A lot of outward show. A lot of outward uh, expression of of one's faith. And if you press them a little bit harder. A lot of times, what you'll get with this idea of religiousness, religiosity, a very public expression of one's faith, is some negative connotations. Uh, statistically, they tend those who would describe themselves as spiritual but not religious tend to have a negative view of clergy, pastors, or priests, and, and they've got they've got enough reason to have views like that. Uh, you look, you know, through the papers; it seems like every uh, Every couple months, every couple years, someone who's been elevated to a, a position of spiritual authority in a parish, in a church, in a uh, in a Christian organization, a lot of uh, scandals and things will happen, uh, and so there's a, kind of a negative uh, uh, negative. Uh, slant on uh, on pastors or priests or clergy. And a lot of times churches or religious institutions as a whole, also kind of a, a negative uh, vibe that, that they get, get from, uh, from churches or religious institutions as well because of scandals, abuses, uh, personal experiences where they've been burnt or, or just uh, hypocrisy or, or what have you. But generally speaking, People who would identify themselves as spiritual, not religious, see a distinction between a very private, individual faith and a very public, outward expression with a lot of forms uh, and uh, a lot of ritualism. And, uh, and, and they tend to have kind of a negative uh, view of pastors, clergy, at churches, religious organizations. Um, there also seems to be a lot of, uh, a, a lot of people who have uh, angst against... Uh, religious institutions against religion in general uh, some people would go as far as to say that religion is the cause of all suffering and evil in the world there's a, there's actually some people who have have uh, written books and, and gone on speaking you know tours and and they have said very adamantly religion is the cause of all suffering and evil in the world if we got rid of religion we'd have you know unilateral peace there's other people who have said uh, and some people make strong arguments that uh, that religion has caused more deaths than all of the world's wars combined that if you look at all of all of the lives that have been claimed because of of holy wars or uh, you know ethnic cleansing in the name of religion or um, persecution uh, or, or or uh, people who are, are, believe that their faith is right, and so they're going to cleanse the, the land of everyone who doesn't adhere to their faith, if you add up all those throughout all the centuries, that there are more deaths as a result of religion than, any, uh, than all of the world's wars put together. That, that's another claim that, that some people make. And, and you look at all these claims, and you look at all these uh, negative connotations that people have about religion, and you kind of ask, uh, you have to ask, why has religion gotten such a bad rap? And the reason is because it will kill you. Religion will kill you. Just look at Jesus. Jesus' most committed opponents were the religious leaders of his day. Not only did they oppose Jesus the most, but they were also the most instrumental in Jesus' execution or his crucifixion. So why did these guys oppose Jesus so much? Why did the religious people, why did the religious leaders of Jesus' day oppose Jesus so much? Because Jesus wasn't like them. Jesus wasn't really religious, if you will. So let's jump to the the Bible, and I'll give you some examples. The first place that we're going to look is Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, you can turn there, or we have the verses up on the screen for you. Luke chapter 5 says this. After this, he, that's talking about Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he arose, Levi arose, and followed him, Jesus. And Levi made Jesus, made him, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, at Jesus' followers, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So here's, here's what's going on. Uh, Jesus runs into a guy who's a tax collector. So he's a Jewish guy, and uh, what he's done is he's become an employee of the Roman government. So he's kind of like an IRS worker. Now, the Roman government said, you have to get this much tax money out of people, and we're not actually paying you, so you have to overcharge them to get your income. So you have to get what they owe us, and then to pay yourself, you have to get whatever, whatever you want to be paid out of them. So the tax collectors uh, would often extort a lot more for their income from people. So they tax people very uh, harshly. And as a Jewish person, you would have seen the Roman Empire, you would have seen the Roman government as, as an enemy. So a Jewish tax collector was someone who sold out your country, They had sold out your people. It was very looked down upon. And these religious leaders, these very good Jews, they said, Jesus, they asked Jesus' followers, how is it that Jesus, who's supposed to be such an upstanding individual, can associate himself with people so despicable, so looked down upon as these tax collectors? And Jesus' response was, I haven't come to help people who think they've got it all together. I've come to help people who know they're broken and acknowledge that they have a need. So one of the reasons why the religious people, the religious leaders, opposed Jesus so much is that Jesus associated with those who were unacceptable to them. Jesus associated with with people who were unacceptable to the religious leaders. The religious leaders, they had a a, uh, reputation to keep up. They had an image to protect. They would not be caught dead associating with people who didn't live up to their high moral standards. But Jesus would associate with people who they would not accept. Here's another instance of that. Over in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we're told that one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city... Who was a sinner. So basically, uh, it's saying very politely that she was a woman of ill repute. She was a woman with very loose morals, a woman of the city, probably a harlot, a prostitute. Uh, A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, that Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who, when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man, talking about Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon... I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. So Jesus says, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, just think about this. First century Roman world, they've got uh, well-paved streets, not like asphalt, but, you know, bricked streets, clean streets in that sense. You're not just walking through mud. But on top of these bricked paved streets, there's quite a bit of, of crud. In the streets. You've got people who maybe are are dumping some garbage out. Uh, You've got uh, chariots that are being pulled by horses. You've got Roman uh, soldiers and other leaders who are perhaps. Uh, riding horses. You've got people who are going to market that have donkeys that are hauling stuff. Maybe uh, even sometimes you've got sheep that are are being uh, run through town to to somewhere. And so you've got a lot of livestock. You've got a lot of different uh, things that are going through the streets. So even though the streets themselves are paved, there's a lot of this crud in the streets. Let's also remember that most everyone doesn't wear closed-toed shoes. Everyone's wearing sandals. So you're walking through all this garbage, and you go to someone's house, and what's supposed to happen when you get in the house is, you know, instead of them saying, wipe your feet at the door, they've actually got something there so that your feet can be washed. But if they're a good host, instead of saying, there's the bowl, wash your own feet, they've actually got a servant who they, they have hired that will wash your feet for you. And, uh, and then also, in the first century culture, you could shake someone's hand. That would be a way to greet someone. But it was not unusual to give them a kiss on the cheek. That was a cultural way to say, hey, it's good to see you. We're glad you're here. We appreciate you. You're a friend. That was a friendly gesture of welcoming someone. And then also anointing someone with oil, putting oil on them, well-perfumed oil. That was, that was also a sign of blessing. And so Jesus is saying to this guy, this religious individual, you think that you're so upstanding. You've not even done the basic, culturally accepted things to be a good host. You've not washed my feet. You've not kissed me. And you've not given me perfumed oil as a blessing, as a you know, gesture of, of welcome. You've not done any of that. And you are a religious, upstanding individual. And here's a woman who's a sinner. I mean, she's got all kinds of baggage. She knows it, and you know it. And yet you, the religious upstanding individual who did not wash my feet, who did not kiss me to welcome me, who did not give me perfume as a gift, look what she has done. She has done all of that to the nth degree. She has washed my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. She's kissed my feet, not just my cheek, but my feet, my dirty, cruddy feet. And then she's covered it with well-perfumed oil. You would not be willing to associate with a woman such as this because you are so upstanding. But this woman knows that she is not perfect. She knows that she doesn't have it all together. And she knows that she not only needs a friend, that she needs a savior. And so that just really cut to the heart of a man like Simon who hosted Jesus. And so one of the things that the religious leaders had against Jesus is that Jesus was willing to associate with people who were not acceptable to them, people who didn't live up to their standards, people who not only needed a friend, they needed a savior. Jesus was willing to meet people where they were at. And so the religious leaders had angst against Jesus for that. Another reason that they oppose Jesus, is that Jesus didn't play by their rules. On many occasions, Jesus didn't play by the rules. But here's one example. Luke chapter 6 says, verse 6, On another Sabbath, that's a Saturday, a Jewish uh, day of worship, he entered the synagogue, which is the Jewish place of worship, and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, it was disfigured verse 7 and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see excuse me to see whether he would heal on the sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him but he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand come and stand here and he rose and stood there and jesus said to them to the religious leaders i ask you is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, "Stretch out your hand." And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now there is there is a, was a law, and it was a law given by God that they were not to do work on the Sabbath, on this Saturday, this day of worship, and the intent of that law, the intent of that command was that that day would be designated as a day of worship to God and rest for people. So people are busy. All of us are busy. All of us can identify with how sometimes the pace of life is is just a, a grinding cycle. You're just always grinding it out. There's never a stop. And God knew that. We were wired that way. And God said, take one day, this Saturday, to the Jews, take one day and worship me and rest. Spend the day stopping from your work, worship me, and rest. Now, what was intended to help people stop work, rest, and worship God was actually used by the religious leaders as an excuse not to help people as well. And so here we've got a man whose hand is disfigured, and what they're doing is saying, if Jesus heals this man then Jesus is breaking the rule because he's working, he's doing something, and you're not supposed to do anything. And we wouldn't do anything to help this man because it's the Sabbath, and we're supposed to rest, and we're supposed to worship. And so, I'll help you another day, but I can't help you today because it's the Sabbath. And Jesus said, worship and rest. What's, what's better, to help someone or to hurt someone? What it's within your means to help someone And you say that you can't, that's not about worshiping God. That's not about following God. That's about selfishness. Jesus didn't play by their rules. They manipulated the rules not to honor God, but to serve their own purposes. And Jesus, Jesus was able to draw the line on when the rules honored God and when they didn't. And most of the time, Jesus didn't play by their rules Didn't mean that Jesus was an anarchist. Didn't mean that Jesus cast off all authority. But Jesus differentiated between God's rules and between their rules. And Jesus didn't play by their rules of selfishness and of self-centeredness and of looking out for what was of your interest not what was beneficial to others. So Jesus didn't play by their rules. And that was another reason why they fiercely opposed Jesus. Also, Jesus pointed out their, uh, he showed that their commitment to the rules didn't go far enough. With regards to God's rules, they thought they were following them clearly. Jesus showed that you are, people are all about rules, but your commitment to the rules doesn't go far enough. In Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer, someone who is an expert in the, in the laws, the Ten Commandments and the other commandments of the Old Testament, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, He, that's the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. So Jesus said, what rules, or basically the guy, uh, the lawyer approached Jesus and said, Jesus, what rules do I really have to follow to get to heaven? And Jesus said, well, you're a lawyer. You know the laws, you know the rules. Which ones are they? And the man answered correctly, according to Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with your everything. God's the number one priority in your life. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's right. But this guy, wanting to justify himself, wanted to find the loophole. And he said, but really, who's my neighbor? Okay, do, do I have to love everybody as myself? The Jews believed that your neighbor was your fellow Jew. That the only other person that you had to love were the people who were like you. They also believed that the Samaritans were about the vilest people on the earth because the Samaritans were only half Jews and there was some ethnic mixing there and their religion wasn't as pure as the Jewish religion. And so the, uh, the Jews really had a lot of racial hatred towards the Samaritans. And so they would not ever think of a Samaritan as being their brother, as being their equal, as being someone who deserved uh, compassion or mercy from them. And so Jesus tells them the story where one of their fellow Jews has been hurt, and Jesus points to three different people, a priest who would be one of the most religious upstanding people in the Jewish community, and Jesus points out the priest didn't love his neighbor as himself. He didn't love his fellow Jew who had, who had been beat up, who had been uh, abused. Then a Levite, who is uh, a group of Jews that are supposed to take care of the Jewish place of worship, and they're supposed to take care of things uh, that are related to the worship of the true God, in addition to the priest, he passes by, and he didn't help. He, who claims to love God with all of his heart, didn't love his neighbor, his fellow Jew, But a Samaritan, a person who they would not have considered a neighbor by any stretch of the imagination. A person who they would rather uh, die than help, possibly. That Samaritan helped their fellow Jew. And Jesus is pointing out that in your own commitment to the rules, you want to find the loopholes so that you don't have to carry them out. But people who you cannot stand do a better job of loving people than you do. You think that you are so faithfully committed to God, but people who you despise, people who you scorn, they actually do a better job of being like God and loving people, being examples of God, mercy and compassion than you do. And your commitment to the rules you're not really committed enough. You're only doing enough to get by. You're only committed as far as it makes you look good. But you're not committed to actually carrying out the heart of God's purposes, loving other people, and honoring God. And they hated Jesus because he pointed this out. Last, the reason why they vehemently opposed Jesus, why the religious people couldn't stand Jesus, the religious leaders, is Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy. Jesus pointed out their double life. Jesus pointed out their two-facedness. Over in Luke chapter 11, verse 37, it says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. The Pharisees had a very stringent uh, pattern of, of things that they would do for personal cleansing. And and we're not just talking about good hygiene. We're talking about things that they believed really made a difference in their position with God. They thought that if they weren't clean outwardly and if they ate something, that that uncleanliness would go into them and therefore they would be unclean before God. But if they did a good enough job washing their hands, then their hands would be clean, then their food would be clean, and that they would be clean before God. So they thought that what they ate and the cleanliness of themselves and of their food really made a difference between them and God, their relationship, their position with God. And so they were appalled that Jesus, uh, who apparently is an upstanding individual, would not wash his hands before he ate something. And Jesus said, you guys, you guys are hypocrites. You guys are all about the outward. You guys are all about washing your hands right. You're all about being clean on the outside. But your heart, your attitude, the things that really matter most, you guys blow it. He said, you even give a tenth of your spice rack. You, you want to follow the rules, and you say, well, God demands a tenth, and so I'm going to give God a tenth of my ground pepper. I'm going to give God a tenth of, of my peppermint leaves. I'm going to give God a tenth of my dill seed. I'm going to give God a tenth of everything in my spice rack. But he said, you guys, blow it when it comes to loving people and loving God. You do all of the stuff on the outside to make everyone think that you're right with God. But all of the stuff on the inside that really matters most to God, you blow it on. You guys are clean like cups on the outside, but you're dirty on the inside. And so Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy, and that really burned them. And so they, they opposed Jesus. They were against Jesus because Jesus would associate with people that weren't acceptable to them because Jesus didn't play by their rules, because Jesus showed that their commitment to the rules didn't go far enough, and because Jesus showed their hypocrisy. And so they opposed Jesus. And because of this, the Pharisees began to work to have Jesus killed. Now, what was their reason for killing him? We know why they were opposed to him, but they couldn't just go and kill him for that. They needed to have an upstanding reason to kill Jesus. Now, some people think that Jesus was killed because he was a a radical and revolutionary peasant teacher because Jesus taught people to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute you and and to sell your possessions and give to the poor and so there's some people who say Jesus was killed because Jesus was about to overturn the social order of things Um, and it sounds real poetic and romantic but Is that really why Scripture says Jesus was killed? We know why the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, opposed him. Why did they work to have him killed? Well, let's go back to Scripture. Matthew chapter 26. This talks about Jesus' mock trial. Right before Jesus was handed over to the Roman officials to be beat and then eventually executed, death by hanging on a Roman cross, Jesus had to stand in a mock trial, before the religious leaders of the Jewish people. Matthew 26, verse 57. Then those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest of the Jews, where the scribes and elders had gathered. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us. You are the Christ. Who is it that struck you? So here we have this mock trial. They're trying to find a reason to kill him. They don't have a good enough reason. They have witnesses <clears throat> who are making claims, but their claims are not lining up. And so finally they come out and they, and they ask him, Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah, the sent King for the Jewish people? And Jesus doesn't argue with them. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't argue with them all along. He just listens to their accusations. But when they ask him this, he says, It is as you have said. You are correct. You got it right. And next time you see me, I'll be seated at the right hand of God, coming in power. And so they said, He has uttered blasphemy. He has made himself equal with God. He has claimed to be God. That's why he deserves to die. Jesus was killed because he claimed to be the Son of God, the Jewish Messiah, to have authority to forgive sins and authority to judge, to raise the dead, and to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Jesus claimed that authority. He claimed to be that individual who had the the power to make those decisions, who had those rights. And so that's why they worked to have Jesus killed. Likewise... Jesus claimed that he came to die. Death was not thrust upon Jesus. They did not mess up Jesus' plan by giving him over to execution. Jesus said, this is why I came. I came to die for sinners. I came to die in the place of sinners. That's my mission. No one can force me into it. This is my choice. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in John 10, starting at verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Skipping down to verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep and take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus said, I came to die for broken, sinful people who acknowledge their inability to save themselves, who acknowledge their inability to be good enough, and who trust in me. No one is forcing me to die. No one is taking me captive against my will. I cooperate fully. I lay down my life. I give it up as a sacrifice. I offer myself for this because this is why I came. This is why I came, to die for sinners who will turn and trust in me. Now, hearing all of these things about the Pharisees, the religious leaders, what I don't want Is I don't want to leave us in a position where we leave today thinking that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, were somehow worse people than we are. I don't want to give us the idea that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, were these evil, horrible, terrible people. They're like they're at a level like 10 levels below all of us, that all of us are a little bit better than they are. Because that's not what Jesus taught. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what Jesus did not say in that statement. Jesus did not say that the religious people, that the scribes and Pharisees, were going to enter into the kingdom of heaven he did not say that they were going to go to heaven. But what he did say was that if you or I or anyone else is going to get to heaven by being good enough and by following the rules, then we've got to do an even better job of rule following than the Pharisees did. And they did a dang good job. Jesus said their rule following will not get them to heaven, but if you're going to get to heaven by being good, then you've got to outdo them. Remember, they gave a tenth of all of their spices, even the most menial things in their life they were rigorously religious about. And Jesus said, it's not going to get them there, and if you're going to try to get there by being good enough, you've got to do an even better job than they did. The one thing that the Pharisees had in their benefit, though, is they understood something. They understood that they needed to be justified before God. They understood that they needed to be declared uh, legally acceptable and righteous before God. Now, the problem is that the Pharisees thought that they could attain that justification by being good enough. They thought that they could be justified by following the rules closely enough. If I'm religious enough, if I'm good enough, then I can be justified. I can be declared okay with God and have heaven as my home, hell is far behind me, and I've got all the blessings of God. That's what they thought. And actually, they thought that their position of obeying the rules well enough gave them an excuse to be mean and harsh to other people who did not follow the rules as well as they did, and thought that it gave them the ability to condemn other people. The truth, though, and Jesus taught this himself, is that only through him could we be justified, only by his dying on the cross and coming back to life. In Romans chapter 4, it's talking about what happens when we trust in Jesus, when we put our complete Total trust and confidence in Jesus to be made right with God, to be declared okay before God, forgiven of all of our sins, hell far behind us, heaven as our home. And it says this in verse 24. It, our faith in Jesus, will be counted, be counted as righteousness. We, By trusting in Jesus, we will be counted okay. Uh, who believe in Him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We're told that when we put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross, our sins are forgiven by His death in our place on the cross. When we trust in His death in our place on the cross, our sins are forgiven. And because Jesus, unlike all the other world uh, leaders of all the religions of the world, because Jesus is Alive, Because Jesus rose from the dead, God accepts His sacrifice in our place and considers us righteous. This is the only way we can be forgiven of our sins, know God as Father, and heaven as our home. Complete, wholehearted trust and confidence in Jesus Christ, His death in the place of sinners, is resurrection from the dead is the only kind of spirituality that matters to God. That's the only kind of spirituality that matters to God. If Jesus was who He said He was and He did what He said He did, then that's the only kind of spirituality that matters to God. Am I wholeheartedly, confidently trusting in Jesus' death on the cross for a sinner like me and the fact that he came back to life and because of that God accepts his sacrifice and God forgets my sins. He forgives my sins and now I can know God is my father and heaven as my home. So the choice is ours, religion or Jesus, religion or the gospel, the message that only by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else can we be made right with God. You see, religion says, if I obey, God will love me. But the gospel says, God loves me, I can obey. Religion says, uh, religion has good people and bad people, people who follow the rules and people who don't. But the gospel only has repentant people and unrepentant people, people who fess up for not following the rules and people who don't care. Religion depends on what I do, but the gospel Faith in Jesus, it depends on what Jesus has done. Religion sees hardship as punishment for sin. Life is rough. I must have done something wrong. Gospel, the gospel sees hardship as sanctified affliction. God is testing me and God is making me more like Jesus because of this. Religion has the goal to get to God. If I do enough, I can get to heaven. Gospel has the goal to get God. I want to know God. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion believes appearing as a good person is the key. Gospel believes being honest is the key. Not acting like we have it all together, but acknowledging that inwardly all of us are very broken. Religion has an uncertainty of standing before God. Well, hopefully, when I get there, the good will outweigh the bad. Hopefully, when God puts my life on the scales, I'll have done enough good stuff that it'll cancel out the bad stuff. That's what religion says. But the gospel has certainty based upon Jesus' work. I know that I'm a filthy sinner, but Jesus loved me and he died for me. And so God will accept me, not because I've been good, but because Jesus was perfect. Religion sees Jesus as the means. If I trust in Jesus, then I get heaven, health, riches, this, that, whatever. Gospel sees Jesus as the end. I get Jesus. Jesus lives in me. Religion ends in pride or despair. I'm either very proud that I've been such a good, upstanding person, or I'm very beat down because I I break the rules all the time. I've not done a good job following the rules. But the gospel ends in humble joy. I don't deserve it, but I get all the blessings of heaven because Jesus earned it, not because I did. Religion killed Jesus, or so it seems. But actually, Jesus died to set us free from religion, from sin, and from death, and to give us life through the power of the resurrection. And so, the choice is ours. On the one hand, we can choose religion. We can even choose irreligion. I don't want to be religious. I don't want to be anything. Both of those end in death, though. Both of those end in death. Only trusting in and surrendering to Jesus Christ results in peace and joy in this life and forever with God and the life to come. The good news of Easter is that Jesus is alive and Jesus is life. Today, choose Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray. Jason and Caleb are going to come back lead us in a song to Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you so much that you are not waiting for people to be good enough. We would have no hope if that's what you were waiting for. We thank you that you are not waiting for us to clean up our lives. We thank you that you are not waiting for us to get it right finally. We thank you that you're not waiting for that because you sent Jesus to get it right. You sent Jesus to be clean You sent Jesus to be perfect. You came in the flesh, your son Jesus, to live the life that we should live but can't and to die the death that we deserve to die but don't have to. Now you're waiting for us to turn from trying to be perfect and from doing whatever seems good and feels right and to finally trust in Jesus and surrender to him. Help all of us every day of our lives to trust in Jesus. And if there be anyone here today who hasn't done that yet, let them do that now. Begin that trusting in Jesus today. We thank you for Jesus and the resurrection, that he is alive, and we have a great hope in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.